Matthew 23 is where we'll be in a moment. You can open your Bible there. As you already heard, my name's Benji, and I serve as one of the pastors in this church. And I've spent a lot of time in churches, and I have to say, I think today is the first time I've ever heard the phrase that God is worthy of our wiggles in worship. And I am so excited. Thank you, James, for that gift. I'm going to see how I can incorporate that more and more often. We are in Matthew 23. Hopefully you've got your Bible open there. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But before we do, first, we need to talk about this. The Monster at the End of This Book. Any fans? Anybody familiar? Yeah. Yeah. This was one of my favorite books as a kid. It was one of my favorites to read to my kids when they were younger. Um, If you've never read it, I'm about to spoil the ending. But it was originally published in 1971, so you had your chance, and I don't feel... I don't feel bad about this. So in the book, the monster at the end of this book, Grover, who you see there on the cover, he learns by reading the title page that there is a monster at the end of the book. And he's terrified. And so he spends the rest of the book pleading with the reader to not turn any more pages. He nails pages together. He builds brick walls, all in an attempt to keep the reader from getting any closer to the end of the book. And each time you turn a page, he freaks out a little bit like this, like, you turned another page, right? (laughs) So, of course, once you reach the end of the book, it turns out that the monster at the end of the book is, in fact, furry, lovable old Grover himself. And he is very embarrassed and says, I told you there was nothing to be afraid of. Well, I thought of that book this week as I read Matthew 23, as one does. Caleb reminded us last week that we are in a section of Matthew's gospel where Jesus has been in regular conflict with his nemeses, the different religious leaders in Jerusalem. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the scribes, everybody's just coming at him. They've brought their theological traps, their outright challenges to his authority. And each time, Jesus has responded in a way that has amazed his listeners, astounded his listeners, and eventually silenced his critics. And so Matthew 22 ends with this verse. No one could say a word in reply, and from that day, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Which, by the time you get to the end of Matthew 22, seems like a really good idea. Stop asking this man questions. Well, as endings to debates go, that's about as good as it gets. But the conversation's not over. It picks up in Matthew 23. But now, it's Jesus' turn to speak. And if you went through your home group study this week or read this passage in preparation for today, you already know that Jesus doesn't hold back in this passage we're about to read. Now, I want to tell you, it's a long passage we're about to read Um, a little bit over a chapter of the scriptures. And so if you would rather stay seated and and honor God's word in that way, that's totally fine. But if you're willing and able, I do invite you to stand to honor the reading of God's word. From Matthew 23, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. 
They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men. Which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it. And by everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside. But on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous. But on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets? Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. You snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all this will come on this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks and under her wings. And you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus left the temple 
and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things? He asked. Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. So, real talk for a few minutes. Sometimes I find the Bible hard to understand. There are plenty of places in the Old Testament, New Testament, where the meaning of a passage is not immediately clear to me. It takes a fair amount of work and investigation to grasp what's being said. This is not one of those places. Jesus actually doesn't leave much to the interpretive imagination here. He's pretty clear. His message is simply this. The discipleship of Jerusalem's religious leaders was nothing more than a show meant to preserve their own power and distract from their own sinful hearts. And the result is destruction for their souls and for the souls of those under their influence. So Jesus is pretty clear in this passage, which makes verses 2 and 3 a little difficult for me to swallow. See, we live in an age in which authenticity and congruence are generally seen as prerequisites for occupying leadership roles. But Jesus says... The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. And i got to confess, I don't really like that. I found it troubling the first time I read it. And I went to the home group study hoping for some help. And whatever fool wrote this week's home group study sure didn't provide me much help. <laughs> it was me. It was not Mike. It was not Aaron. It was, I <laughs> did that to myself, to be really clear. So what's Jesus getting at? Well, I think one challenge for us whenever we come to Scripture is taking off the lenses of our own experience and our own context in order to better understand what's happening in the original setting. And that's a challenge here for me, at least, maybe for you as well. Because I know that as I read this, I immediately begin thinking of the religious context that I know best. That of late 20th century, early 21st century American Christianity, typically suburban American Christianity. A place marked by religious freedom in which every city features multiple options for worship communities that have really clear differences between them. And even if you should not like any of those, you can at least read your Bible on your own and listen to Elevation Worship on Spotify. Well, the Jews of first century Palestine lived in a very different setting. Folks didn't wake up on Sabbath thinking, you know, I've become increasingly disappointed with the leaders in our congregation, so I think we should try out the new temple plant that meets at the movie theater. There's just one temple. The sacrifices that took place at the temple couldn't be replicated elsewhere, and most people had no access to the scriptures themselves. So Jesus rightly identifies the Pharisees and the scribes as those who have inherited the mantle of spiritual leadership from Moses, the original giver of the law, and says to the degree that their interpretation and exposition of the law is in line with God's heart, that the people should give them a hearing. But notice that because of their compromised hearts, the authority lies in the role itself, not in the individual. The Pharisees and scribes exercised leadership that was born merely out of office rather than faithfulness, which forced the people under their sway to work out their faith in less than ideal circumstances. Because when you can't dip out, you have to figure it out. 
And these verses remind us that it is possible to faithfully declare truth while living truly unfaithful lives. So what are God's people to do in such a situation? Honor the office, obey the word, but don't emulate the lives of such leaders. Honor the office, obey the word, but don't emulate the lives of such leaders. And so Jesus calls his people to examine the lives of those who lead them and to keep their hearts wary of those who teach the faith but don't live faithfully. So in verses 5 through 7, Jesus sums up his critique of the scribes and Pharisees. Would you look at it again? Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. Phylacteries were boxes that contained small pieces of the scriptures that even today, observant Hebrew men would tie on their arms and on their foreheads in a literal enacting of this command from Deuteronomy 6. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. It is so typically human to take something that is meant to express submission to God and use it as an opportunity to draw attention to self. I was going to make a joke about lugging in a really massive ESV study Bible into this space, and then I realized that this Bible is not very small and it's fairly ostentatious. So, (laughs) log from my own eye first, I suppose. So according to Jesus, the lust for esteem and the trappings of position was the clearest indicator that these religious elites of Jerusalem were not walking a path of integrity and faithfulness. Early church mother, Ama Theodora, says this, a teacher ought to be a stranger to the desire for domination, vainglory, and pride. But it is these very traits that mark the leaders of Jerusalem, the ones that had so readily come to question and examine Jesus rather than submit to him. So not surprisingly, if you've been tracking both his teaching and his example, Jesus calls his people to a different way of life than what is on display in the most respected leaders of Jerusalem. With the first two words of verse 8, but you. They're some of the most powerful words in the whole chapter. Because with these words, Jesus casts vision for a different way of being the people of God by living lives that are marked by humility before God, deferential love of neighbor, and hearts bent towards service rather than the applause of others. And so the promise and the critique of verse 12 couldn't be any clearer for everyone in Jesus' audience. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And in verse 13, Jesus begins these seven pronouncements of woe on the religious leadership that was living such hypocritical lives. And I want you to know, church, that I wish more than I can express that this section of the chapter had all sorts of unclear things for me to unpack, some spots to get into the Greek or to flesh out the original context. But there's actually not that much of that because this text is frankly pretty clear which makes me a little sad. 
Because what I'm left with instead is a rather uncomfortable invitation to look into the mirror of my own heart and even my own leadership. Friends, I know as profoundly as anyone else in this room the temptation to work for the praise of others. After all, I'm the one audacious enough to stand in front of you for half an hour and assume you want to give me your attention. The longing for the admiration of the people is not a condition unique to first century religious leaders. It is alive and well in 21st century religious leaders, including the one standing in front of you. And candidly, that longing has felt particularly pronounced in me over these last few months of church life. I have seen ways in which my leadership has been unduly shaped by the experience of encountering crossed arms and cold shoulders, of being misunderstood and mistrusted, or even of being applauded or avoided. And in response, I have seen in my own heart, it is easy for me to plot courses toward whatever it takes to lessen the frequency and the likelihood of your scorn or increase the likelihood of the dopamine hit of your affection. And I think it's easy for any of us, regardless of any leadership position you might hold in any setting, to tune our hearts to the praise of those around us. And yet it's noteworthy that Matthew tells us in verse 1 that this address was directed to the crowds and to the disciples. Which means it would be a mistake to simply conclude that this message is intended solely for the leaders of Israel. Rather, the compromised lives of the leaders of Israel formed a perfect canvas on which Jesus could display a broad warning about lives of hypocrisy. And in this chapter, Jesus calls all of his people to a life of integrated wholeness and freedom in which our confession matches our conduct. So I want to act, ask two questions that arise out of this passage. And the first is this. Who should we look to as leaders? Simply put, leading from positional authority alone is not the way of Jesus' kingdom. That may have been the sad reality of those who sat on Moses' seat, but Jesus pushes his people beyond mere appearance. And calls those who would be leaders in the family of God to lives of spiritual integrity. Which means that the character of our leaders is more important than their competence. And that's a metric that it's easy to lose track of even in the church. When he was sent to anoint a new king, Samuel heard these words from God. A message that too many churches have ignored. Do not consider his appearance or his height. For I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Even in the church, it's easy to choose leaders by exterior metrics like can he draw a crowd? Does she preach with passion? Will he reach young families? Can she cast vision? And instead, the author of Hebrews calls the believers to remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life. And imitate their faith. And Paul sets a lofty standard when he tells the Christians in Corinth, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And perhaps this is why James warns his readers, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. And even though leaders indeed stumble in many ways and none will model perfect discipleship, to Jesus, churches nonetheless have a right to insist on evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in the lives of their leaders. 
For those who would shepherd the people of God, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control are not optional add-ons for people who can teach a text well. They are the core qualities that give credibility to the word of God preached. And it is the only way that leaders can avoid the charge of being simply whitewashed tombs. Which means, church, that you must hold all of your spiritual leaders, especially the one in front of you, to a standard higher than mere externals. Refuse to settle for anything other than a life that bears evidence of the Spirit's work. And it also means that if you are blessed to have such Spirit-shaped leaders in your midst, and let me tell you, church, you do, the men and women I have the privilege of working with, both on our elder board and our staff, are some of the most spirit-touched people I've ever seen. Their lives are marked by character that comes from the spirit and not from themselves. And because of that, I want to challenge you, church, to be both vocally grateful and vigilantly prayerful. Because the pull toward hypocrisy remains strong, even in the hearts of those who long to point others to Jesus. In the 6th century, Gregory the Great wrote these words, Alas, I am like a poor painter trying to paint a handsome person. I am trying to point others to the shore of perfection when I myself am still tossed by the waves of sin. In the shipwreck of this life, I beg you to sustain me with the chart of your prayers. Shameless plug. Will you pray for the leaders of this church, for your elders and for your staff? As we have led through some choppy waters over the last number of years, and especially the last number of months, the need for your sustaining prayers is as clear to me as any time ever. Though we are not perfect, and none of us, especially me, has led perfectly at every step of the way, the work of church leadership is taxing and relationally costly, and like Gregory, I beg you to sustain us with your prayers. Because Paul reminded the Ephesian Christians, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Our enemy would delight to see those who lead this church become nothing more than whitewashed tombs, who lead out of mere position rather than spiritual transformation. But the scriptures also insist that there is an all-powerful God in heaven. Satan is not a rival on equal footing with the God of the universe. He's an inferior usurper and he has to flee from the power of God, a power that God has promised to unleash in response to the prayers of his people. Will you pray? Your staff and your elders are as earthy and needy a bunch as any, and we desperately need protection from the schemes of the enemy and empowerment for the work that God longs to do in and through each of us and in and through this church. Pray for us. But though this passage features rebuke after rebuke for those who are leaders, there's also a message for all of the people of God here. So I also want to ask us, what do we do with our half-heartedness? Jesus' picture of half-hearted discipleship in this chapter deeply resonates with my heart, and I suspect it may for many of us here this morning. Because the tendency to scrub the outside of the dish is as alive in this room on a Sunday morning as anywhere else in our lives. We desperately long to project something that looks put together that would finally be worthy of Instagram. Now, if you've hung around for a minute, you already know that we are pretty committed to the language of spiritual family. 
The metaphor of family is one of the main ways that the New Testament describes the people of God. But one of the things that might be easy to miss about that metaphor is that it is an invitation to messiness. Because our families always know the stuff we try to hide. I might be able to fool folks into Trader Joe's into thinking I've got it all together. I might even be able to fool many of you as long as you never come to my house and speak to my children. (laughs) Because if you did that, they would spin outrageous tales about me being short with my words when I'm stressed or too preoccupied with my phone to be truly present with them or me using sarcasm as a motivational tool, (laughs) they will lie to you. (laughs) But we know, don't we, that it's pretty much impossible to hide the gross that lives in our hearts when we live in a family. And in the invitation to spiritual family is an invitation to honesty about what's real in each of us so that we can move together down the path of discipleship that is marked by the freedom and joy of being deeply known and welcomed in spite of our half-heartedness. Why would a church be like that, you may ask? Well, because that's how the God who called us is. Many of us Many of us entertain more than just a little bit of fear that if we let the brick walls down in our hearts to show what's real, on the other side is waiting the monster of an angry God who wants to devour us. But listen again to some of the most beautiful words of this passage. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. For those willing to own their sinfulness, what awaits is a beautifully gracious God who pursues his people in love despite their total rejection of him and his kingdom. And the church that God established through the blood of Christ and the indwelling of the spirit is called to exhibit the same pursuing love for half-hearted disciples. Whatever darkness lurks in your heart, I suspect you haven't made a life out of killing the prophets and stoning the messengers of God. But even if you have, God stands ready to meet you with shelter and transformative grace if you finally come to see your heart as it truly is. In the Christian story, the only monster at the end of the book is the one who clings to self-righteousness and builds walls of hypocrisy to prevent honest access rather than come into the freedom of being known by a God who longs to draw sinners into the shelter of his transformative embrace. Do you know that freedom this morning? Do you know the stunning and transformative grace of being welcomed and scandalously loved by one you've wronged and run from, by one who's already seen what lurks in your heart and says, come home to me? If not, that welcome is available to you right now because God is still waiting with arms outstretched. All it takes is a willingness to be honest about your heart and your need for the grace of God alone to make you whole and bring you home. And at this table, week by week, we remember and celebrate that grace is extended to half-hearted creatures like us by a whole-hearted Savior who took a punishment he hadn't earned so that we might know righteousness that we could never earn. The Apostle Peter, drawing on the words of the prophet Isaiah, puts it this way, "...he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross." So that we might die to sins and live for righteousness by his wounds, you have been healed. 
And so week by week we come and we take bread and we remember that Jesus' body was pierced. And we dip it in wine and we remember that his blood was shed and poured out for the forgiveness of sins so that we might know a righteousness that we know we don't already have on our own. If you have never known the exchange of your sin for his righteousness, God wants to make that exchange for you today. But if you have known that exchange, this meal is for you. And you are invited to come and be reminded again of the sheltering grace of God. If you want to know that transformative grace of God, I invite you to come pray with one of our prayer teams that'll be on either side. Talk to somebody sitting near you. Grab one of our church staff. Any of us would love nothing more than to introduce you to the God who already sees you as you truly are and longs to bring you into his shelter. If you're not there yet and you're not ready, I invite you to watch as a bunch of people who have seen the monster inside of them come in honesty and freedom to the God of shelter and grace. Let's continue in our worship.